1969, Mark Wieser began making preserves from his, uh, his Texas peach orchard. He used his mother's recipe and he sold the products at a little store in Fredericksburg, Texas. The store did well. Mark expanded his orchard. Ten years later, a 15-year-old kid named Case Fisher was hired to pick peaches on the farm, along with a whole lot of other people that were picking peaches on the farm. But Case was special. He became fascinated with the whole process of growing and preserving fruit. So while he was in college, Case approached the boss with an idea. He had an idea about expanding beyond their local fruit stand. Mr. Wieser was intrigued and a partnership was formed to preserve the treasure of their fruit and their business. Today, Fisher and Wieser products are available all over the world and and they're good. They're really good. Now, a big part of what brought these two together was their mutual faith in Jesus Christ. Their joy in preserving treasure extended far beyond fruits and vegetables. They were interested in the fact that both human souls, listen, human souls and divine rewards are either preserved for heaven or they rot forever. And that is exactly what today's passage in Mark is all about. Open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, second book of your New Testament, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to pick up where we left off in Mark, our last gathering, Mark chapter 9, starting verse 43, 43 of Mark chapter 9. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where, and he quotes here from Isaiah 66, where their worm does not die. Worm, by the way, there, probably the best translation would be maggot. Uh, the maggots don't die. And the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. There's a binary choice. The binary choice Jesus describes here is really clear. Uh, we state it this way in your notes. I know we're all online together. By the way, I should have explained for those of you who are, um, who are around the world with us, we are so delighted to worship with you. And actually everybody is in your shoes with you because there's no one here in the auditorium except a very few of us. And, uh, and so everybody, if you will look on the screen, whatever platform you're using, you should be able to find a place to, to download the notes. And in those notes, you'll see this. It's a binary choice, eternal treasure. Is yours gonna be preserved for true life or is it gonna be lost or rot? Now, this whole soliloquy here is predicated on a particular contrast in Jewish thought. In Jewish thought, heaven is the place of eternal life, and hell is a place of eternal burning and rot and flies and maggots. You see, in Jewish thought, the kingdom of heaven is the place of life. It represents eternal life because there one is united with God forever. God, the author of life, who is eternal, who does not die. To, to be with him is both the goal and the meaning of life. And for this Jerusalem-centered culture that Jesus addresses, the valley of Hinnom provided a perfect picture of hell. That valley, the valley of Hinnom, served as the ever-burning trash dump for Israel, always on fire. It became a symbolic metaphor for the, for the very real dimension of eternal separation from God. That's why 
Greek-speaking Jews called hell Gehenna from the valley of Hennum. For modern Americans, I, I think the Babylon Bee provides this excellent satirical parallel. Let me read to you from the Babylon Bee. Uh, Dateline Hell. Satan has confirmed that hell is simply a regular suburban house. Like most houses, it has smoke detectors in case a fire starts. But in this house of eternal torment, one of the smoke detectors is beeping a low battery warning and you will never, ever figure out which one it is. Satan said, <clears throat> from the satirical site Babylon Bee, Satan said, there are drinks in the fridge, but it's all LaCroix. <laughs> the Amazon Echo is set to play Carly B's WAP on repeat for eternity, and no, we can't change it. And worst of all, there's one smoke detector beeping, and you can't find and stop it for all eternity. They close the article this way, millions immediately accepted Christ upon hearing the news. <laughs> That's pretty good. As an eternal smoke alarm is to us, so was the valley of Hinnom to Israel. Now, Jesus' language on hyperbole can seem confusing, so let's make sure we understand. Everything we just read flows from the previous section. So let's get the context. Go up to verse 41. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Jesus is talking about rewards in heaven. If one causes other Christians to stop following Jesus, to fall away, he will suffer great loss at the judgment seat of Christ. By contrast, there is fantastic reward in heaven for those who support and, and encourage others in following Jesus. Now, starting in verse 43, the Lord builds on that by showing that these rewards or losses, they don't just apply to how one treats others. It also applies to each Christian's own life. Look, your eye. If your hand, your foot, this is about you, believer in Jesus. You can cause yourself to stumble and stop following the Lord. And the loss involved in that is terrible. Again, he's employing obvious hyperbole here. Jesus doesn't really want his people to pluck out their own eyes. And neither are Christians ever going to be thrown into hell. That's impossible since believers in Jesus have been redeemed. We, we're reminded... Look, just look at the matchless prose of the Apostle Paul. Look at this reminder. Colossians chapter 1. Read with me, would you? Where, wherever you are, whenever you are, read, read the underlined part with me. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, and the context is God the Father, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. All right, so if Jesus doesn't indicate maiming uh, and, he, and he's not indicating damnation, what does he mean by this hyperbole in Mark chapter 9? It's all about treasure. That's the issue, preserving treasure. It's an extension of 41 and 42. But instead of being about others, Jesus here reminds his people of the impact a person has on himself. Jesus ratchets up the rhetoric to awaken his complacent, self-centered audience. In, in, essence, in essence, he says this, if you believers start following sin and stop following Jesus, you can make your life a living hell and lose treasure in eternity. By contrast, you can cut out the sin, which, which often feels like amputation. 
It hurts. You, you can't cut out the sin so that you better follow the Lord. That's better for you and gives rewards in eternity just as if you had helped another person. All right, now, the ending of Jesus' answer emphasizes salt, that salt preserves. One either gives up everything in order to be preserved for eternal reward, or one becomes worthless for preservation, preserving self or others, you're worthless. But Moses' law, you're going to see this, Moses' law runs through this whole section. And, and in this spot, Jesus is alluding to Leviticus 2.13, where, where through Moses, God commanded Israel this. He said, season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. Grain offerings. Grain offerings were used to show devotion to God. Grain offerings were showing that you commit to follow God because you're so thankful for Him providing provision and goodness. Moses' law said salt had to be added before that sacrifice was burned. As he fulfills Moses' law in Mark, Jesus shows that Christian lives are meant to be devotion offerings to God. We commit to follow him because of his provision of, of goodness to us. If we salt our sacrifices by living for Jesus, we bless others and we preserve rewards in heaven. If we follow sin instead, we rot, we become tasteless, losing treasure in eternity. Understand? Now, the idea of preserving true treasure continues in, in chapter 10. Go to Mark chapter 10, and let's read the, the first 12 verses. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 1. He, Jesus, set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. The crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful? I don't know if you know that's how they spoke. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a quote from the very, very, very first thing in the Bible. First thing Moses wrote, Genesis 1. Then he goes to Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, and by the way, we don't know which house in Perea. It's probably Lazarus's house. The disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, look at the map. We're going to show you the map. Jesus leaves Galilee, and he, and he goes south into Judea, and then across the Jordan into the region called Perea. Uh, it's across the Jordan River. And there this amazing confrontation with some Pharisees arises, and it hinges on this question. Will marriage treasure be preserved? Or will it be torn up in divorce? Now, the Pharisees set their attempted trap by quoting their understanding of Moses' law. So let's get the context. What was the Mosaic plan? Moses' law was always intended to be limited. It was temporary to be fulfilled by Messiah. And in the world in which that law was given, the Mosaic law recognizes the reality of divorce, just as it recognizes the reality of other evils like, like slavery. These are not endorsements. They are practical protections. Look, God gave Moses a divorce law specifically to protect females, not to excuse divorce. 
In fact, Israeli culture was singular in demanding that a woman be protected by being given a certificate of divorce. I, I want you to look, just, just, just consider the Old Testament law in its historical context. In the ancient world, unwanted wives were just kicked out to the curb. Seriously, that's it, no protection at all. But about 300 years before Moses, a, a king of Mesopotamia named Hammurabi, he wrote the first protection law, at least the first one we know of, for females. Hammurabi demanded this. He said, if a wife gets divorced, she gets her dowry back. Now Moses took that a big step further. Deuteronomy 24 commands that a woman be granted a legal certificate of divorce. What did this do? It protected her money. It protected her property. It allowed her to remarry. It, it safeguarded her from some mercurial ex-husband who might try to demand her back later. Now, I know, I know, that, that brings up the, the statement that you're, I know you're making in your um, Elizabeth Taylor voice. You're saying, how droll. Their laws didn't even fully protect women. Thank goodness we're not like that now. Thank you for that, Mrs. Serial Divorcee. It is true, America has more and different laws than Israel. In fact, American divorce law, did you know this? American divorce law is very similar today. It's very similar to what the Roman Empire divorce laws were at the time Jesus spoke this. Look, in Rome then and in America now, a, a female can initiate divorce for any reason or no reason. She gets at least one half of community property. She can kill any unborn child on demand at her wish, and she can remarry anyone at any time. So in my <clears throat> Richard Burton imitation, let me ask you, Elizabeth Taylor, so how's that working out for modern women? It's pretty good. I do Richard Burton pretty well. Um, the truth is, things seem worse for divorced females in America now than they were in first century Israel. Just look at this. Even under Roman rule, the Israeli divorce rate appears to have been about 4% at the most. Ours is, ours is well over five times that. Their divorcees rarely, much as we can tell, they rarely lived in poverty. Ours are much more likely to subsist below the poverty line. And divorce... Divorce is only the tip of the hellish world that we have put together for modern females. Amanda Foreman put it this way in a really great Valentine's Day article in Smithsonian. She said this, the grim modern divorce statistics don't even touch on the reality that for an increasing percentage of the population, life is a series of short cohabitations punctuated by the arrival of children. For a country that makes such a fuss about love on the 14th of February, America has a funny way of showing at the other 364 days of the year. Close quote. That limited plan of Moses, it was designed to avoid that mess. But as we point out on the right side of our notes, look to the right side of your notes, the rabbis had messed things up. Like modern Americans, the rabbis added rules and they added case law to build up a huge body of competing ideas. Divorce truly was a hot-button issue at this time in history. Even though it applied to a small fraction of the populace, it was a very emotional issue. And this was the idea behind the Pharisees' trap for Jesus. Uh, John Grasmick, uh, old professor from Dallas Seminary, he explains in his commentary on Mark, he says, all Pharisees agreed that Deuteronomy 24 permitted divorce, but they disagreed on the grounds of divorce. The strict view of Rabbi Shammai allowed divorce only if a wife were guilty of immorality. The lenient view of Rabbi Hillel allowed a husband to divorce his wife for almost any reason. 
Perhaps Jesus, they're thinking, perhaps Jesus would take sides in this dispute and thereby split the ranks of his followers. Or perhaps he would offend Herod Antipas, that was the, the Roman ruler of this area, as John the Baptist had done, and maybe Jesus would be arrested because he was under Herod's jurisdiction in Perea. Remember, that's where this happened. It's a pretty good trap. But Jesus' response is better. <laughs> oh, he, he quotes Moses back to them, but not Deuteronomy 24. That's what they expected. They expect him to quote Deuteronomy 24. No, no, Jesus exposed the unlimited plan of God. He goes back to Moses' very first pages, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I, I recently mentioned C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which I know you have all been busy reading ever since I mentioned it. This brings up another parallel. This passage brings up another parallel between Aslan, he's the lion, the, the Christ figure in Narnia, and Jesus in the book of Mark. In, in Lewis's books, Aslan overcomes the evil, horrible white witch. She only knew the law of magic, but Aslan knew the more ancient, deeper magic. And that's why he won. That, that's an echo of Jesus here. Look, look. He looks at the deeper magic of what Moses wrote before the law. Th these are the most ancient ideas that transcend the built-in limits of the Mosaic Code. And this deeper magic is God's decree. One man, one woman, forever. One man, one woman, together, forever. Marriage is intended to be a preservative in a world of rotting relationships. A friend recently wrote this to me said, Wayne, marriage is a sacred treasure, and God is deadly serious about seeing his love and faithfulness toward us lived out in our love and faithfulness to our spouses. It is a slap in his face when we who claim to follow Jesus dishonor God by violating our covenant with our spouses. Close quotes. Well said. The bottom line is that divorce is not an option, save for very specific circumstances that Jesus details elsewhere. Far from preserving life, divorce tears, divorce destroys. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some very hard things in marriage. Couples often need intervention. They often need counsel, sometimes even separation, especially when a spouse is violating Scripture by dishonoring their partner. But except in the case of sexual immorality, divorce is never part of the solution. Never. With loving grace and yet without compromise, God declares that what he has joined together, no one should separate. I spoke about this last month with a, with a, a poor man who's horribly strained uh, with his mentally ill wife. He confessed to me, he said, Wayne, there's no scriptural support for divorce in my situation. But I, he said, I want to do so anyway. And I listened and based on what he said... It was clear that he thought divorce would end his terrible pain. Now, this man with whom I spoke has a doctorate in chemistry. So I asked him, I said, hey, um, what happens when somebody throws water on a grease fire? And he said, well, it's bad. Explosions, pain, burns. And I told him this. I said, divorce is to marital stress what water is to a grease fire. I ached with this poor fellow. But in response to this idea that divorce solves problems, I said, look, you can, you can either become perfected through that marital fire or you can try to douse the pain with divorce, in which case 
you will burn yourself worse. Wonderfully, I'm very happy to report that he promised to seek help instead of divorce. God declares that a wife or husband is a treasure. That doesn't change the realities of marital problems, but it certainly puts them in context. Think, think the same God who inspired Proverbs 19.13 also inspired Proverbs 18.22. Look, look, look up here. Proverbs 19.13. A foolish son is his father's ruin and a wife's nagging is an endless tripping. The same God who wrote that truth said this. 1822, a man who finds a wife finds a what, everybody? A good thing. All the wives said that really loudly. Amen, you should. And obtains favor from the Lord. Even a nagging partner is still a treasure. So hang in there. Get God's great help. You know what? Maybe someday you can send me notes like this. I want to read to you a letter that I received this week. Wayne, my husband's issues certainly were a trial. I can remember clinging to the fact that the promise I made before God and a crowd of witnesses included hard times. Now, whether or not my husband stayed was out of my control, but for me, God clearly said, stay. Those days were so very hard. As life got a little easier, I often prayed that our daddy would restore the years the locusts had eaten away. My marriage had a huge hole in it that only the Lord could fix. I'm thrilled to say that I think he's doing just that. Our days together are full. Our family is growing and life is rich together. Close quote. Amen. So that we can enjoy stories like that, Jesus goes back to the deeper magic, the unlimited plan of God, and shows that marriage is a treasure that is to be preserved. Let me give you one last example of this. Um, a lady named Johanna Hall. Uh, Johanna Hall was folding laundry actually folding laundry one day and her thoughts as she was folding laundry turned to the to the treasure of a long marriage she, she actually stopped folding she got a piece of paper she scratched down her thoughts turned it into a simple poem well Johanna's husband was a musician named John Hall and he liked this poem and he wrote a tune to go with it it became a top five hit here's here's how it goes we've been together since way back when sometimes I never want to see you again but I want you to know, after all these years, you're still the one I want whispering in my ear. You're still the one I want to talk to in bed. Still the one that turns my head. We're still having fun, and you're still the one. You're still the one that... You're, you're singing it, aren't you? Makes me laugh. Still the one that's my better half. We're still having fun, and you're still the one changing. Our love is going gold, even though we grow old. It grows new. Here's how they wrap it up. You're still the one who can scratch my itch. Still the one. And I wouldn't switch. We're still having fun, and you're still the one. You're still the one that makes me shout. Still the one that I dream about. We're still having fun, and you're still the one. That's not bad. This whole section is about preserving treasure in eternal rewards, in marriage, and in the next big idea. Go, go to verse 13, the next big idea. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. After taking them in his arms, he laid hands on them and blessed them. Childlike wonder 
Childlike wonder is, is a key treasure that must be preserved. The treasure of childlike wonder was captured really powerfully in the film Dead Poets Society. Um, I, I want us to just watch two minutes of that classic film. Uh, watch Robin Williams in the Dead Poets Society. The poem score for perfection is plotted on the horizontal of a graph and its importance is plotted on the vertical. Then calculating the total area of the poem yields the measure of its greatness. A sonnet by Byron might score high on the vertical, but only average on the horizontal. A Shakespearean sonnet, on the other hand, would score high both horizontally and vertically, yielding a massive total area, thereby revealing the poem to be truly great. As you proceed through the poetry in this book, practice this rating method. As your ability to evaluate poems in this manner grows, so will so will your enjoyment and understanding of poetry. Excrement. That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. We're not laying pipe, we're talking about poetry. How can you describe poetry like American bandstand? Well, I like Byron, I give him a 42, but I can't <laughs> dance to it. Now I want you to rip out that page. Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out. Go on. Rip it out. Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, not just tear out that page, tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History. Leave nothing of it. Rip it out. Rip. Be gone, J. Evans Pritchard, PhD. Rip. Francis Hare, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. That's the Bible, you're not going to go to hell for this. Make a clean tear, I want nothing left of it. Oh, it's so good. Je Jesus' kingdom is poetic. It's, it's wonderful. It must be received like a child who delights in the sounds and the stories as well as the meter and the rhyme. If, if we don't receive God's blessings with childlike wonder, then we, we end up plotting nonsense. We, we reduce the kingdom to something we can control as J. Evans Pritchard, PhD, did to poetry. When, when that occurs, you and I actually miss the blessing of Jesus' kingdom altogether. Even though we're citizens of that kingdom, we end up missing out on the adventure of redeemed community. Instead of childlike wonder, you know what happens? Here's what we end up like. We end up like people in modern America. Because in modern America, childlike wonder is increasingly under siege. I, I shared with you recently from Alana Newhouse's uh, 2021 article from The Tablet. Here, here's some more. Look what, look what Ms. Newhouse wrote. America has rapidly become a place where institutions have been repurposed as instruments to instill and enforce the narrow and rigid agenda of one cohort of people, forbidding exploration or deviation, a regime that has ironically left homeless many, if not most, of the country's best thinkers and creators. Anyone actually concerned with solving deep-rooted social and economic problems, or God forbid, with creating something unique or beautiful, a process that is inevitably messy and involves exploring heresies and making mistakes, they'll hit a wall. This is chilling, but true. Look what she says. If they're young, 
and remotely ambitious, they will simply snuff out that part of themselves early on, strangling the voice that they know will get them in trouble before they've ever had the chance to really hear it sing. Close quote. That is horrible. Americans need reminded that childlike wonder is a treasure. And you know, Christians are probably the only ones who can show the way. Really, Christians are probably the only ones who can show the way to this country because childlikeness is in our blood. It's part and parcel of believing in Jesus. Without the preservative of wonder, people get sealed. They get sealed in bitterness, strife, cynicism, and isolation. Now, at this point, I, I, you're, you're sighing and you're saying in your, in your internal Robin Williams imitation, thank goodness none of this applies to me. I, I, I trust Jesus. I'm guaranteed heaven. I've not divorced my spouse. I'm so childlike, I enjoy finger painting. Right, Robin Williams? I enjoy finger painting. Oh, good for you. But this last part of the section may draw you into conviction with the rest of us. Go to verse 17, if you dare. Verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, and here he quotes from Exodus 20. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who could be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last, what? First. Yeah. The big question here, the big question here is whether the treasure of following Jesus alone will be preserved or lost to materialism. Now, one thing about children, children are also childish. They're not always childlike. And one of the great childish traits is acquisitive materialism. The, the word mine was surely invented by a preschooler. Mark Mark didn't want us to misunderstand Jesus' child illustration. So, so this is really brilliant. He inserted this story here. We, we mustn't become childish materialists. That kind of nonsense keeps us from following Christ. It, it often keeps people from even believing in him. Now, there are three parts of this final lesson about preserving treasure. First comes this great phrase. <laughs> this, is, this is so fantastic. Setting out on a journey. Wonderful writing. 
The, the, whole, the whole follow me theme of Mark is right here in one phrase. Jesus, Jesus is saying that he's setting out on a journey. You can either follow him or you, or you can lose that treasure. He points out in the text, he's fully God. Jesus alone is worthy of leadership. That's why he breaks the seals in the book of Revelation. That's why he is praised for eternity. He alone is worthy and he invites us to go with him on this great journey. Think of it like this, keeping with the childlike theme. You know, besides Moses' law, the other thing running through this whole passage is, the, is a childlike child image. So let's, let's use a child illustration. Imagine Rolled Dolls Charlie. Uh, Roald Dahl's Charlie uh, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Imagine Charlie turning down the opportunity to follow Mr. Wonka. Okay, suppose, suppose Charlie and Grandpa went and traded their golden ticket for a million dollars. Wouldn't that be tragic and, and ridiculous? Now, it, Charlie, thankfully, would never set aside his golden ticket. He wouldn't miss his ride on the great glass elevator. Those things are worth more than any amount of money. And, and if you've read the books, you know, in fact, following Mr. Wonka actually leads Charlie to uncountable treasure. And that's what we miss when we don't accept the daily chance to follow Jesus. We exchange the greatest adventure for, for, for stuff, for mere stuff. The second part of the story is encapsulated by the rich young ruler's declaration where he says, I have kept all these. <laughs> As Robin Williams would say, excrement, liar. This young man's a misguided liar. I'm not picking on him. I'm just telling you the truth. No one but Jesus can actually keep all of Moses' commands. In fact, the whole, purpose, the whole purpose of the law is to display our inability and our need for God's grace. Paul deals with all this in Galatians. Look, look Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why then was the law given, Paul asks? It was given alongside the promise. The, the promise is the, the deeper magic, the, the older idea from Abraham of God's grace alone through faith alone. That's how one knows God, relates to him as, as part of his kingdom. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. That's Jesus. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and people. Look what he says in verse 24. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian or our tutor until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith, through faith. The law has one job. You had one job, one overriding job. The law is to show people our sins and our inability without Jesus. It leads us to Messiah. The fact that this wealthy guy thought he had kept the law, that tells us he didn't really know the law at all. He, he came to Jesus looking for 12 steps to even greater heights of legalistic righteousness. And Jesus reminds him that the law instead provides 613 steps to realize our unrighteousness. And yet, look, Jesus loves this fool. The Lord even exposed the nobleman's materialism. He, he gives the guy a second chance to realize his sinfulness. But the young man sadly chooses to be sealed away in his materialism. And this causes the disciples to wonder, then who, who can possibly be saved? The answer is that all things are possible with God. Look, look again at verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Because all things are possible with God. 
being saved is beyond human reach, which is exactly what Moses' law was designed to teach us. But thank God, one can be justified by faith alone in Jesus alone. All God's people said, amen. Gene Getz summarizes it this way in his Bible notes. Uh, Dr. Getz said, it's clear no one can be saved, rich or poor, apart from God's grace. It is impossible to inherit eternal life by doing good works. This reality is difficult for many rich people to comprehend. They have bought their way into almost every economic and social situation, including religious communities, but they cannot buy their way into heaven. To be saved, they must put faith in God and not in their wealth. Now, this is fascinating. Peter's pretty quick to jump in here. And it's interesting that Peter runs immediately from, from this topic, the Lord's topic of entering the kingdom, to the idea of following Jesus alone, surrendering everything. The, the whole nobleman discussion was about believing in Jesus because one sees one's need for salvation. So why, why does Peter hijack the conversation and start talking about material treasures the disciples have given up in order to follow Jesus? You ready for the answer? The answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Seriously, I cannot figure it out. Theologians have three main theories. Let, let me show them to you. It, it could be, here's the first theory. It could be Peter is finally waking up to the fact that has been patent throughout the Gospel of Mark that a person can follow Jesus and not believe in him, or, or, or vice versa. A person can believe in Jesus and not follow him. It may be Peter's waking up to that. It, it's also, second theory, it's also entirely possible that Peter is angling to gain favor by showing how much he and the boys have surrendered for the Lord. Now, by the way, Peter did leave behind a business. He, he, he wasn't, the words used for him earlier, it, he's not just a young man, uh, a teenager probably like the others. He, the word used for him is somebody who owns a business. So he gave that up to tramp after the Lord. He may be wanting a special pat on the head for that. I've known some pastors like that. They, they always want extra praise for their, their sacrifice. Uh, option three. It may be, and this is really sad, but it could be Peter is so dense that he is actually trying to buy his way into heaven by showing what they have surrendered. He may actually be confusing following Jesus with being justified by faith. Now, whatever Peter's motive, Jesus' interruption is insightful. And, and I say interruption because Peter had only begun to speak when Jesus answered. And his answer is very simple and very profound. He says two things. He says, there are manifold rewards that far outweigh anything any person surrenders in order to better follow Jesus. The second thing he says is the, the hierarchy of reward, it is not, it's not human, it's not even appreciated by people. Many first will be last and last will be first. And on that insightful cryptic note, the conversation ends. The thought section ends right there, leaving us full of thought. And upon reflection, I, I sense that this text is asking a few questions of us and, and, and demanding answers. So let's do this. I want us to run up through the passage in reverse order, okay? First question, is materialism binding you? Is, is materialism distracting you from following Christ? It very likely is. Oh, not me, me. Look, our own souls are very materialist. We are, we are broken souls. We live in a world system that is set on the folly of material-only thinking. So if, like most of us, you're struggling with materialism, it is binding you from following Jesus, let me suggest two actions. I think these two things 
can position a person to, to preserve the treasure of following Jesus. First thing, stop thinking material things make you great. Stop thinking the lack of material things make you not great. You know, there were a lot of Pharisees. Many of them believed that richness was equated with God's favor and with godliness. That's why the disciples are so shocked here. Jesus puts paid to that. He, he finishes what Job started. And he dispels this whole prosperity theology excrement. Don't wallow in that anymore. Praise the blesser and stop thinking that you're important because of material blessing. Stop thinking you're not important because of its lack. Second thing to do, give. Give. Giving to God erodes materialism because because it turns our eyes onto the true giver. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team sent me a great note about this. She wrote me and said, over the years, Wayne, I have discovered there is far more joy in giving things away than ever is in gathering them up. The, the choice to share results in joy and, oddly enough, the wherewithal to give more away. And she finished with this, our Abba, that's Aramaic for daddy, our Abba is so amazing. Close quote. Amen. All right, second question from the text. Have you lost the treasure of childlike wonder? If so, let me give you two things to do. Number one, finger paint. I'm totally serious. Get, get something tactile like Play-Doh or, 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 or finger paint and try to make something. What you'll find is the creative process is truly wonderful. You'll also see how like a child you still remain because your creation will probably not be <clears throat> stellar. Which takes us to, to number two. Speaking of stellar, look at the stars. If you've lost childlike wonder, go out, examine God's creation in quiet for a space. It is a great way to reestablish wonder. You know, I don't think even, even a meteorologist named J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D. could take away the wonder of fallen snow. Back up through the text. We're going back up through the text. Are, are you not preserving the treasure of relationships, including marital relationships? If you're not, the answer is to come together in peace. Use a counselor. Rely on the Lord. In Christ's words, be at peace with one another. I recently heard of a couple who were estranged. And, and during the pandemic, they started studying Scripture with, with all of us through the live stream. God used that experience in spirit and scripture. He used that experience to reunite them. It's a beautiful story. And their story is an encouragement for all of us to preserve the treasure of relationships. Question number four, do you trust Jesus? The, the rich young ruler story demands that we ask this. Do you believe in Jesus? If not, please look at Moses' laws and realize that you are in need. You, you are not perfect. Let, let your sin be exposed and lead you to trust the Messiah who died for you to pay for your sins. And he rose from the tomb to lead you in eternal life. Our final application question is something that runs through the whole text. What is keeping you from following him every day on every journey as he was about to go on a journey? You know, our town here in Frisco, we recently lost a precious lady known as Miss Kay. Miss Kay made delicious preserves from berries. They were so good. But, but Miss Kay's 
fruit preserving was just a small part of her story. She followed Jesus in every aspect of her life, preserving true treasure for eternity. What's keeping us from doing the same thing? By God's grace, you and I do not have to give in to rot. Whatever is blocking you, work with God to remove it. Fight through it. Follow him. It is the only way to preserve true treasure. Let's let's pray about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. And I pray that we will follow Jesus. We will follow Jesus for our greatest treasure. That we will preserve the treasure of our true relationships. It is such a great gift to be in relation, even with all the strains and bumps and bruises of life this side of heaven. Help us preserve the childlike wonder that you give us. Lord, you have provided for us in your kingdom this amazing this amazing blessing that we don't deserve, and we must respond to that with childlike wonder, but instead we are very childish. And I beg you to change that in us. Father, I pray you release us from binding materialism, materialism that rots. Is that things aren't bad. You created them. It's that we make them gods. And Father, I pray most of all for anyone who is studying with me that has never trusted Jesus as Savior, that right now they will preserve their soul for eternity because of your grace, your provision, that they will believe in Jesus and him alone for salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.